thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 sleepers and that was then this is now with the all access patron membership you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the chills at will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations literary event calendar and the chills at will podcast news you will get a shout out on a future episode too with the vip patron tier which is ten dollars a month you'll get access to all episodes a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure. 99.999% fun. I've gone to interview people like Disha Filia, what? Matt Bell. Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Cochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks. 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Allegra Hyde, with Justin Tinsley, Jose Antonio Vargas, Yasmin Ramirez, Kai Harris, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 160 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Saima Sidwat. Saima is an author, speaker, and educator. She was born and raised in Karachi, Pakistan, and migrated to the United States of America in 2003. She holds an MA in English Linguistics from the University of Karachi, Pakistan, and a Master of Public and International Affairs, or an MPIA, from the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. She's also an alumna of the Leadership Pittsburgh class, ooh, the Roman numeral is 35. Saima believes in the power of storytelling. Her love for stories has taken her from corporate boardrooms and downtown skyscrapers to Punxsutawney, a town in rural Pennsylvania, on Groundhog Day. You know it from Phil. She puts her faith in the word, written and spoken, to provide healing and challenging pre-existing paradigms. Her writings have encompassed a vast array of topics and genres, from penning opinion pieces and investigative reports to policy papers and developing strategic plans. From professional writing to personal narratives, Saima always strives to find a singular anchor that is the story at the core. The story might belong to a person or a business or nonprofit organization, but the vision and mission is always defined by the one true story behind it. Saima is the author of her newly published, in 2020, Memoir, which is American Muslim and an Immigrant's Journey. Good morning. How are you today? Great to talk to you. Thank you, Pete, for having me over and for that generous introduction. Oh, of course. The in reading this again, I'm like, oh, okay. So linguistics. I that was one of my least favorite classes, <laughs> but I could be convinced. How, what was? What does that mean to study linguistics? Yeah. So. Um... 
I uh, also my bachelor's, which was my BA in mm. uh, Karachi, Pakistan at the University of Karachi was in English literature. And it was during that time that I was introduced to the idea of linguistics. Uh, I have always enjoyed learning etymology of languages and the root of languages and where do words come from. So I think that's what interested me about linguistics. Also, uh, you know, much like uh, many people growing up during my time, I wanted to be a teacher. Yes. And uh, the linguistics program that I did was an applied linguistics program, which meant that it was very focused on teaching English language in Pakistan. Okay. Uh, so that was also one of the motivations that it had a heavy uh, teaching development component. And mm -hmm. I was interested in that. Okay. So I, I take it back. I, I, same with you. I love, 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 love etymology. Love it. Mm -hmm. History of words, um, you know, words between different languages. I saw, you know, it was a TikTok thing and take it for what it's worth but i you know i believe it yeah. to be true but it was it was talking about different types of arabic in i want to say tunisia and egypt and one of them they said the word for shoe is something like sapat and as a spanish learner spanish yeah. teacher sapatos in spanish i'm like okay right. you know, I know yeah so you know, those things are always fun right? and um, yeah and uh growing up in pakistan we studied several languages at the same time so Urdu is my native language. That is my first language. But then alongside, we studied English right from kindergarten. Uh, mm -hmm. Another regional language, which is Sindhi, uh, which belongs to the province where uh, Karachi is, the city okay. where I am from, that was also mandatory till a certain point in school. So we also studied that. Um, in, in college, I also was a French minor. Mm -hmm. So it was always really fun to discover the similarities and the right. roots of different languages um and how their paths cross each other yeah definitely um you said you said sin what is, what is the language Sindhi. with an s yes oh okay very interesting yes yeah, so, you know like the linguistic class i'm talking about it was the reason i didn't like it so much it was about like literally about like the mouth i don't know if you took any class like that you know like what part of like the fricatal or fric you know you know talking about the fricative sound and yeah, the glottal sounds yes. and the refractive sounds. Yeah. And so, so that was like the phonetics part of it was really fun too. <laughs> and um, I remember there was this uh, exercise that we did in the phonetics class. Like we had group projects and then some of us friends would try to find um, a song that would begin with every phoneme uh, just so we remember how that sound is. There you go. And I think it was especially, I wouldn't say hard, but a little difficult for us uh, to us in that linguistics class to pinpoint some of the phonemes and phonetics mm. because we were second language speakers ourselves. Sure. So right. to get it right was a different level of understanding it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, I'd love to talk about, about growing up in Karachi. Was Urdu your first language and you learned English at five or did you learn them both, you know, kind of side by side? And also I'd love to know about like Englishes, you know, plural that were maybe spoken in Karachi, which I know is a huge city just in Pakistan in general. You know, um, I go to something simple like, you know, flat for an apartment. Yes. Like, yes. Am I correct that, 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 that the English yes, would, would have been, yes, would have yeah. been British? That's been a good British analogy. Most, yeah. Right. So, yeah, just kind yeah. of. A, kind of a lot, a lot there, but just about growing up um, with languages and Englishes also. Yeah. So Urdu is my first language. That is uh, the language that is spoken at my home. Uh, I'm 
I don't remember what my first words were, but I'm sure they were in Urdu. But uh, at least the school that I went to as soon as I had started school, which was at the age of two and a half years, which is a preschool, preschool come daycare like model that you would see here in the U.S., I, I studied English. Uh, we were taught our ABCs at that time. Uh, we would have the nursery rhymes. They may be a little different than what I saw my children learn here because uh, most of the English that we had and the model that was copied in Pakistan is the British model and the British English. So even growing up, I read a lot of British literature as against American literature, which came much later in life. But yeah. um, at least, you know, during those uh preteen years and uh, in childhood I read a lot of Enid Blyton which was okay. um, you know as again some other books that my daughters would have read here mm, okay. so uh, so that's how English was but uh, what was the second part of your question well just like English is I know like in like big cities like in India and a lot of India they'll call it uh, what like Hinglish like a mixture of Hindu and English oh that's right yes is there yes. something similar is there an Urdu there or... is yes and uh, so there is definitely uh, one of it is accent we have our own accent which mm-hmm. uh, you know which may look like a British accent sometimes and a little okay. bit of American accent but it really is what I call a Pakistani accent of English and right. uh, some of us fluently speak in that accent which mixes words of English and Urdu there is a whole debate on if that's the right way to speak a language or right. not but that definitely exists yeah. but at the same time and I have written it in the prologue of my book as well what's very interesting to me is that we use some English words when I came to United States I did not see those words of English at all. You mentioned one of them, like flat for apartment or okra for, uh, Mm -hmm. so we call okra lady finger. There Uh, is an Urdu word for it, which is pindi, but in English, we would always translate it as lady finger at that time. And, or eggplant, eggplant was brinjal or flashlight was called torch. Yes. Yeah. So, so, you know, there were like significant differences in language mm-hmm. and it really took, uh, I would say a huge learning curve for, especially for someone like me, I feel because I came speaking English fluently and I thought that I knew the language so well, I used to teach it. Mm-hmm. So I feel I was, it was probably more difficult for me than someone who did not speak English at all, yeah. uh-huh. uh, because then they would learn the language anew. But yeah. for me, there was a lot of unlearning and then relearning right 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 right. oh man growing up what were you reading um whether it was you know what were you reading that was assigned you said you talked about a lot of british lit and then what were you reading on your own i was um i was a voracious reader i am also an only sister i have two brothers i'm also the oldest in my cousins (laughs) so i i did have a lot of lonely time i would say and books were my best friends Mm. then um and then I, I read Urdu, I read English. There were series of Urdu, like, you know, I see my teen daughters reading now, but there were like, uh, there would be a novel every uh, month. And, you know, I would look forward to getting it and reading it. Uh, it's by a writer. His name was Ishtiaq Ahmad. And um, it was, I would I would call it like, um, something like you know they're trying to solve a mystery kind of like nancy jew but then you know at the other hand i'm also reading my nancy jews and then enid blyton and um 
so that that's that was during the childhood years but then as i grew up again there is uh pakistan being a british colony in the past there is a lot of fascination with british literature almost to the extent that if you want to excel in the world these are the classics you should be reading mm-hmm. so then there was a lot of charles dickens and mm-hmm. bronte sisters and thomas hardy and um and i guess you know then there was a point that i was I was reading anything that came my way. My parents were very open-minded and liberal that way. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of books at home. Uh, so, but there was never any book ban kind of thing that, you know, yeah. this is not the book that you read as a child. Mm-hmm. Huh. As you got, as you got older into, into, I mean, is, is high school the same equivalent? Like, would you, is there, is there a British term for high school in Pakistan, maybe? So yeah, it's, again, you know, Pakistan like has different, yeah, yeah, there are different educational systems, believe yeah. it or not, there are also American schools, which follow the American high school system there, oh. and the curriculum, I understand. Uh, but the system I went through is the local system. Uh, and it has changed since then. Uh, that's my understanding. But at that time, uh, it was that there were 10 grades, the 10th grade was called the high school, then there was college two-year college or secondary school and um and then you had a choice of going either to what we call university uh, for your bachelor's or you could also stay in the college and do another two years of Mm. bachelor's there and then also and then you go on to do your master's so I did college for two years and then I went on to do uh, my bachelor's at Karachi University and then did subsequently did master's there. So like was the plan to be an educator was the plan to be like what would 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 10th grade Saima have been shocked to know that you're a published author and and you know that you make like you know short films and all that like was the plan to be a creative in that way or was it just like oh let's see how what what comes Um, yeah. I know I definitely wanted to be an educator and uh, writing is something I have, I have, I, I guess until much later in my life, which was probably like three years back, mm. I had never thought of writing as my career, mm. right? Like I had different day jobs, different careers at different points in my life, but writing is something I always did. I think my first piece was published when I was either like in my final year of high school or college. So, you know, like 16 years of age. Mm. And since then I have written on and off. So so writing has always been part of me. Um, I'm so glad that I finally have the opportunity to pursue it as a career. Mm. I have to give it to my husband. He has really encouraged me to do that because he always kept on saying that, you know, you have to write more because there's so much, just so much time in life. And if you have another career and job and with Mm -hmm. kids and home, it's, uh, it gets hard so yeah but I always wanted to write and enjoyed writing did was there like a eureka moment or moments where it was like whoa I, I can do this I people enjoy what I have to write people it resonates with people or has that kind of been an ongoing process yeah no I have to say there was a piece there were actually a couple of pieces I would say and I wrote them in Pittsburgh uh one was um I think it was in 2015 and it was about there were a lot of um, incidents about they were both around the same time and they were about Muslims living in Pittsburgh and one was specifically about 
um, some of the incidents that were happening in the community and also in the United States at large uh, as a re result of the election rhetoric that was starting to come out at that time. And the pieces were heartfelt. I have to say they are probably pieces I had to put the least effort into. I wrote to the editors and uh, they got back to me. They published it. And when they were published, there was a very positive community response, mm. not just from the Muslim community, but from uh, many others. In fact, I remember getting emails um, from um, from people in the neighborhoods and, and they said that they had not realized how how things that are said publicly how do they impact people personally mm. and i and i also heard that for some others um these pieces help put um a face to a story or so some of the rhetoric that was coming out and um like i remember one of my um friends in pittsburgh mentioned that her mother-in-law read it and she had not realized that you know, how is this impacting families and people? Mm. So um, I think it was very encouraging to get some um, some applause, some positive response for the writing. And, and I have written more and more since then. So if I have to trace back, I think I have definitely uh, written more since 2016. It has been kind of like a breakthrough moment for me as well, that if I have, if I, if there's this thing, if there's writing that I enjoy, then I should do more and more of it. Mm. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's so cool that you've had the chance to write so much. It's it's terrible that it, you know the reasons why, right? Mm -hmm. Like you talked about the rhetoric, yeah, and all that that have that have forced those things out. Right. right. See, I I think yeah, it's it's sad, but you know, I also feel that uh, you know, just like Charles Dickens said, uh, that it's the it was the worst of times and mm -hmm. it is the best of times kind of thing okay. and I, I feel that there is also a need to uh, not just need but there's also a desire to learn about Muslims in the community mm -hmm. and the desire is growing and I also see that the response is becoming more and more positive mm -hmm. I um, I even remember coming from the classes that I taught back in 2017 about Muslims in the neighborhood to the classes that I go to now teaching the same course mm -hmm how my materials have evolved over time, how the questions that I receive during the class or during the book talks that I do, they have really evolved from the very basic to to more uh, nuanced understanding of okay. Muslim neighbors. Okay. Um, so, you know, when you read now, when you read for fun, you know, the name of the podcast is the Chills at Will podcast. Those ones who give you thrills, those ones you can go back to, those ones you've almost memorized. Like, who are you really enjoying now? You know, who's some classics who have really thrilled you over the years? I finished a book last night, Pete, which yes. really gave me chills. Uh oh. Uh, it's uh, Our Missing Hearts by Celestine. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have I, you read I, it? It's on my to read list for sure. Oh my goodness. So I won't, I won't give you any spoilers, but okay. you have to read it. I just okay. finished it last night. I'm still recovering from it. And I think a book that gives you chill that way, um, it's very, it's very realistic. Mm. And though it's set in a utopia, right. it does not feel like a utopia at all. Okay. Like some of the things she has talked about. I'll stop at that. And, you know, I will let you and your listeners uh, explore the book for yourself. But but do pick it up. All right. Well, if, uh, one of my dream guests is to have Celeste Ying on. So if I get her on, you can 
I'll, I'll call you up and you can be the little box in the corner. You yeah, can yeah, of right? course. I would love to. Oh, yeah. I've heard great things. I, I loved her other book as well, Little Fires Everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I did not turn out to be such a big fan of the TV series that was based yeah. on it and how it changed it because I love a book that leaves something to your imagination. Right. And, and I love that about the first book. And I love this about this book as well. Do you, is, is the series continuing, do you know, or is it is it finished? I think it's finished. It was okay. a mini series. Okay. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know. I didn't follow it, but I don't think there are any more episodes in it. Hey, the book is 99% of the time, the book is better than the movie, right? Or yeah, the TV yeah. series. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I'd love to talk about about your book which i have right here if you're watching at home thank you thanks for reading it oh of course american muslim and an immigrant's journey what um how about the cover where did that come from the graphic at the at the bottom so it's uh it's by a designer it's uh his name should be on the back i don't quite remember it designs.com um, okay Yes, yes. He was very cooperative. Um, mm -hmm. I worked with him. He is from, um, I can't believe I don't remember this now, but I, I think he's based in England. And okay. I actually had a call out for designers and designers sent me, um, you know, their stuff. I had several and then shortlist. It was over days. And then I I involved several other people I know in the process and people from across the globe because I wanted it mm. to resonate with uh, especially the Muslim community. But then I have librarian friends. So I sent it out to them. And then we went through a process of shortlisting and selected mm. it. I think this stood out for me for several reasons. Um, I love the silhouette on it uh, okay. for some reason. and uh, And also, you know, how... Um, the American flag convergence and it's like a road going forward. Yes. Which which shows hope to me and which is how I, I look at this memoir at this point, mm -hmm. right? It's it's not the end of my life, right? Yes, the journey yes. ahead. Um so so and and it's moving forward. So that really spoke to me. That yeah one thing definitely that in finishing the book I'm like, oh man, like because it ends in twenty twenty, because it ends in like the thick of the pandemic which hopefully the thick of the pandemic is over. I know the pandemic is not over. Hopefully, who knows, right? But yeah, but yeah I definitely feel like, oh man, I'd love to read the sequel, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. I, I know this is my family in Pakistan was like, you wrote a memoir too soon. Uh. And, um, but, um, but who knows? I mean, as a Muslim, I believe that we don't know how long we have to live. And mm. Um, and I, I have to say that I had a kind of urgency to not only to yeah. document my story, but also to publish it mm -hmm. because um, I don't know if you noticed or not, it came out right before the elections mm -hmm. in 2020. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to time it that way because mm -hmm. I wanted it, it got a little delayed. I would have ideally liked it to come out in summer or maybe by August, but okay. um, because of editing and other trivialities that came up yeah. it got delayed but uh i did want the story to be out i did again want people to see what is it like to be a muslim woman in america at this point in history and how important it is that we elect the right people to represent us mm -hmm. because uh it impacts all of us eventually 
Hmm. I wonder even just about like the syntax of the title, like it, it could be Muslim American. Is I don't know, you know, is that just why why is it American Muslim? Was that a is that a conscious choice to put that word? It is order? a conscious choice, and it is a conscious choice that many American Muslims make today. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember being in outreach groups where, um, and there are outreach groups in which we talk about languages more like, you know, there are just as there are DEI groups and other groups where we talk about what kind of language to use and what is the right language to use mm-hmm. and what part of your identity comes first right. or or what part of your identity to highlight or bring in focus. So when um, we talk about, it is a conscious choice to talk about being American and Muslim in that way Um, again not to say that one is more and one is less but I feel that one is almost an inherent part of my identity which Mm. will never be debated which is being a Muslim but another point has been it should not be debated but it has been so much up for debate that we don't know anymore very interesting it all started with cleaning the bathroom was one of the first (laughs) Um, that's well, so in, in the prologue first, actually, let me back up a little bit. The prologue, there's the, you know, one of the things that you do so well in this book is you really just give us like a, an eyewitness point of view, like what it's like to come to a new place, right? I mean, it's not like it's just totally crazy. Like, what is this place? Like, you you know, you've, you knew English very well and, you know, you're, you're a worldly person. You, you know, you have the internet, you read, whatever. But yeah, you're just like, wow, there's some small things and interesting things that make it um, you know, some that are kind of like, haha, that's funny. We can all laugh together. Mm-hmm. And some that, you know, we're not as, a little bit more serious. But the first part on the prologue is about, tell us about the Fahrenheit and Celsius uh, discrepancy. Yes. So that's that's what the book starts from. And um, and even to this day, it's unnerving for me when I read the temperature. And mm-hmm. then my first thought is that, what? Like 90 degrees? in summer but uh so in pakistan we read temperature in celsius right and when i came to united states i had no idea no idea that it can be read any differently <laughs> um i mean of course i had to study science and i knew it it is possible but that there is a country in the world which reads it differently <laughs> i had no idea so my first few days in chicago it was november mm. and i would see uh, temperatures in like low 20s maximum 30 degrees mm. and uh, which would be high in celsius like if you uh, convert that temperature to celsius that's like around 70 degrees celsius and yeah. uh, 60 to 70 degrees roughly and i was like oh i don't i don't need sweater i, I don't need a jacket i can just go out like that and uh, my husband worked very long hours at that time for his residency training so he would usually not be home um I would see that people are really covered and uh, but I would go out, I would be shivering, I would be very cool. And I was like, it was just unfathomable. It was mind boggling that what's going on, like what the, the, the temperature that I see at home is uh, on my TV screen is so different than what I feel. And for some reason, I just felt that something's wrong with me. I just feel cold <laughs> oh, in this no. country. <laughs> In this new country until I realized one morning after two weeks that uh, what I am seeing in terms of temperature is in Fahrenheit and not Celsius and it's it's below it's like below the freezing point 
So, so yeah, but I think it was also from that point, Pete, that I became a lot more open-minded about mm. learning things because I did not want to go through any more trouble. Right. Americans with are literally the only country in the world, right? I think that uses Fahrenheit. Is that right? I don't I know, so. but but yeah, um, I know they don't do it in Canada because we have family right. in Canada and they read their temperatures in Celsius. I have a friend from Canada. She's still like after being in the United States for fifteen years, she uh -huh. still reads it in Celsius. Exactly. You know, um, soccer. You know, soccer here is football. Yes. Everybody else. Yes. Football. Uh, so as part of the prologue, you you write that you're you're looking for your degree in quote Americanism, right? And you you kind of saying like even to this day, you know that that Americanism. What is Americanism to you? Or it's probably a long, it's probably a lot of things, huh? Yeah, and Americanism is not just about language; it's about manners and mannerism and how people interact with each other. I remember listening to one of the other right immigrant writers. Um, don't remember the name at this point, but she said that you know, uh, sometimes like when she was new in the country, uh, people would say, "Oh, we should get together," and she was like, "That I will." take out my diary, my notebook, and I would be like, okay, when? Let's get a date down. Uh. But in <laughs> America, people just say this as a way of being nice, that, oh, right. let's get, that means you're welcome. You know, I would love to see you. Hello. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean that we have to meet the next day. <laughs> or, uh, or as I have written in my book, I come from a very conservative culture. And uh, when I say very conservative, it's a uh, it's not conservative in the way that people like to uh, reject uh, that, you know, all women are wearing headscarves and covered in long burqa, not, nothing like that. It is a choice that some women would make in Pakistan, but it's it's definitely there is a, a gender barrier like men and women do not, uh, they would mingle. Uh, mm -hmm. I studied with men in college, but uh but we would not hug, we would not kiss, we would, uh, you know, that would only be done in a, in a romantic setting, it's, mm. or, or you would hug your husband, and even mm. that not publicly, most mm. often, so, and things are changing now, but at the time, 20 years back, when I came, it was, it was very strange, like, men and women would not even shake hands in Pakistan at that time, and when I was here in the United States, everyone did want to shake hands with me, and so that was that was strange. That was part of the Americanism that I had to get accustomed to. And there are, as you know, my my daughters were born and they started school. There were a lot more other things that came up. The relationship between uh, parent and parent and school. And I, Pakistan is a ninety nine percent Muslim country, so right. uh, you know the holidays are different. The events that take place at school are very different. So. Uh -huh. So it was it was a completely new learning experience. And then now that my daughter is a junior in high school, um, I guess I'm learning the college application process at this yes. time. Yes, yes. Oh, boy, that junior year is an important one, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's, college it's... coming up in like year and a half for us. Oh, my gosh. Exciting and also I'm sure a little bit anxiety inducing. But yes, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. So as the as the book goes on, you know, the first chapter is is like fresh off the plane. And you arrived in, in Chi-Town and, you know, talked about the Windy City. Um, and you talked about, um, you know, learning those things, you know, the temperatures and all that. But it all started with the bathroom as well. 
So I love, I love, you know, the, you do a good job of contrasting, um, you know, growing up in Pakistan. Would you say middle class? Would you say upper middle class? Yeah, upper middle class, but definitely not elite in the sense mm-hmm. that, you know, because things are um, a little different, like to be able to uh, afford household help, you do not have to be very rich. You do need some money, of course, you pay mm-hmm. them. Uh, but uh and and that's the case with many developing countries. And and by the way, that line, it all started with cleaning the bathroom. That <laughs> one is for my South Asian friends across board, not just Pakistan. But <laughs> because we often talked about it, that how our lives changed and how, mm. uh, you know, everyone in some of those developing countries talk about and aspires to be in, in a country like the United States. But look what we are doing here. We are just cleaning uh... the bathroom. And doing the dishes and things uh, that you never did back home. So, <laughs> well, I was, I was feeling for you as you went along. I'm like, oh no! Like, is is it is there going to be a way to clean that bathroom? You know, because it, it became a mess. So you know, it was overflowing. <laughs> but you said you, you figured it out. So nice yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the figuring out part was that um, I had, and I also had very basic and minimal cleaning supplies at that time. <laughs> right. I, I had no idea what cleaning supplies to get. So I did have a big mop. And eventually I just dipped that mop into water and wrung it out in the bathtub. And literally hours of doing that. And uh, that, that that's how I got rid of that water. <laughs> Obviously writing about learning, learning, you know, American ways and customs and um, you know, some of it was glamorous. You get you you're flying to LA to see, I think, like a family friend. Yes. Right. And you, you know, you went to Vegas. And you know, one of the things you learned is like, man, you gotta you gotta reserve these places, especially, you know, Vegas is, is packed. You gotta reserve that early. So you ended up in like, was it was it Mesquite, Nevada? Mesquite, yes. Which is not Las Vegas. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And and far from Las Vegas. Like uh-huh. nothing like it. So so tell us about like the uh kind of walking in um gingerly to the to the diner and just the idea of hash browns and making <laughs> sure you're eating the right things. Yeah, I know, I know that experience like till this day when I see hash brown, I I think of it. <laughs> and uh it's a story that now even in Pakistan, and I'm I always make sure that I say this because uh people who are listening to your podcast feed, they should know that Pakistan 20 years back. It was not the same. It, things sure. have moved on. It's a global world. There's just so much more exposure due to satellite and travel that even in Pakistan, kids today, even young kids today would know what hash brown is. But when mm-hmm. I came to U.S. in 2003, I had no idea what hash is, especially if someone says it hash. If they yeah. say hash brown, I may still, you know, try to think of, oh, I read about it there or saw somebody. Mm-hmm. But just seeing like, you know, hash on written on a breakfast menu. <laughs> I was like, this has to be a drug. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Um, and and more than myself my husband is always very cautious that you know not to what if you know some bacon is sneaked into our food or alcohol or something Mm -hmm. that you know we are not supposed to consume and um, and I saw that hash and um, and then there was a server who asked that you know if you uh, we would like some hash with our omelets and no, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and then, 
she was like, okay. But then I was also curious. And then I'm thinking that why would people have hash with their breakfast? This, right. I like the, again, like the temperatures. It doesn't make sense. Like why are people <laughs> having hash with omelets? So um, I asked that, you know, what is hash very reluctantly. And, and she seemed so surprised. I still remember. And, you know, like as I have written in my book, that she looked surprised that she has to explain potatoes to an adult. Right. But she did. She said potatoes. And then, of course, the next thing I thought of that, oh, these are kind of potatoes that I've never heard of. So mm-hmm. um, my natural question was that if there's any pork in it, and and that to this day is my question uh, for everything mm-hmm. because I have learned along the way that in US people put pork in so many things like even a chicken sandwich can have pork uh-huh. so it's always better to ask so I asked and she said yeah. we don't put pork in our hash and we tried it and loved it hmm. and um and now at home sometimes I prepare hash for yes. my daughter I love it yes my college roommate and I had like a two or three week um span where we were just into corn uh for whatever reason corned beef hash <laughs> and like i mean we had it like twice a day <laughs> and then probably never had it again i don't know but yeah but another thing you do so well in the book is you know you, you don't set it up as like a binary where like oh there's this evil waitress you know like scoffing at us like you could see you could see her point of view she was like surprised like you don't you don't know what a potato has yeah. but at the same time on your side of course like this is this is new and like you said, you wanted to be sure about what you're eating. I've written the speed at some point in the book. I think it's more towards the end that, you know, both America and I continue to learn from each other. And, right. and I think this is something I really admire about the United States. And I have talked to others. I have friends who live globally in other parts of the Western world, in Europe and England and, and many other countries. And But I do feel that there is a sense in the United States that we we want to understand. Mm. And, and and it's not 100%, but I feel that people do try um, to do their best. And um, and I do it. I, I learned to learn about people and other cultures sure. more when I came here. I became more open-minded just by seeing that how open-minded others around me are. Right. Right. So, you know, the usage of like dependent and independent, you you write about how you were you were independent, right? You didn't have the family structure. You didn't have as many of the babysitters. You didn't have, you know, people helping out with some of the household tasks. Um, but you're also dependent, literally, like on the visa for your husband. Right. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you were someone like you talk about you wrote for the national newspapers, you taught English. And now, you know, some of people in your family and others, your friends thought it was like a, a come down to work at a retail job, right? Yeah. So I'd, I'd love to know about the early days of like, you know, you were sending pictures and and, and emails to everyone back home and they're like, oh, cool. And, and look very uh, flashy. But you but you write about it as kind of like a facade. Yeah. And um, if I look back, that was a time that I probably went through an identity crisis. Mm. And uh I went through it again when I, a few years down the lane as well, but definitely at that time, uh, because I, and I think I was trying to find my place in this new world. Mm -hmm. Um, Firstly, I came to the US by virtue of my marriage to my husband. I had not planned my career as such, which he had. So, so when, though we came at the same time, uh, 
he was here for uh, to be part of a residency program, but I was home. And again, as you said, I was on a dependent, a spouse dependent visa, mm-hmm. which at least at that time uh, did not allow spouses to work without employment authorization, which was mm-hmm. another document. And though I applied for it right away, it took several months to arrive. And during that time, I had no network of friends in the city of Chicago. There were a couple of people my parents from back home had connected me with, and those people were very nice. I have written about them. Mm-hmm. But um, I come from a household uh, full of people, not which did not just had my parents, but I grew up with my grandparents in a house mm-hmm. with uncles and aunts and cousins. So, uh, so my life was always surrounded by people but here I was sitting in the Chicago apartment um, at a time when there's no whatsapp when there was mm, right uh, there was there was some presence like MSN or something but you know okay. mostly we would buy phone cards and they were expensive and there would be mm. limited talk time and uh, so I feel that that really was depressing me and and very soon I started volunteering. I would say from my second month in the United States, I was like, I have to get myself out of it, even if I'm not paid for it. So I volunteered at the Chicago Public Library. And uh, I remember the good folks there also started feeling bad for me because I went on volunteering and they had a program where you could be part of the library they will employ you if you work for certain months and certain hours and I was way past that at one Uh, point but but I still could not work for them and then just around the time my employment authorization came uh, there was an opening at Marshall Fields and and I really liked that store in Chicago and and I, I would just visit it when I was volunteering in library downtown. I would just go and visit Marshall Fields. So it looked like a good opportunity. And I took it and I had seen women like me work there. But it definitely was, as you said, a step down for people in Pakistan because mm-hmm. they it's, it's a different landscape and um, it's not considered respectable. Mm. I would say for women to stand at stores like that. And again, things have changed there as well. You see many sure. more women, especially young girls, mm. working at restaurants and storefronts, mm. which is a very welcoming change. Mm. Uh, but it was not the case at that time. Yeah. A small point, but um, what was the what was or is the the meal to get? Was it was it like the gut buster or one of the restaurants you talk about? You said it's one of the greatest meals ever that you go to from Marshall Fields. Is it Potbelly? Potbelly. That's oh yeah, I love Potbelly. Yeah, so yeah, I I still like you have to try Potbelly. I don't know if they have it in second. Are we talking like Chicago beef? Like no, no, no. Potbelly is a chain, but it's not in. Yeah, so so now that I'm in Baltimore, there are Potbellies in Baltimore Ah. and Washington D.C. area. There was no Potbelly in Pittsburgh. It's it's a chain. Some airports have Potbelly as well. Okay. Oh, yeah, nice. it's a good classic sandwich. and Nice. It's like make your own sandwich, but their bread is really good. Their meats are good. Okay. Um, you talked about it. Now, is it like, you know, D-E-S-I, is it Desi, like a Z or is it Desi? Yeah. So it's Desi. Desi. You can say it in, yeah, in Urdu, it's Desi, but um, in America, many people would call it Desi. Right, that's what I hear. Yeah. You write about, you know, how to you know, about fitting into that, obviously coming at, you know, in the early, early twenties, Pakistan and growing up there, 
so this idea of you know fitting in even with like another culture would be to be like the the desi american right and you talk about like when you eventually move to pittsburgh and you know there's the usual thing there you know there's you have kids and you have your friends who are mothers there's a, it's some feeling of isolation but you're you know starting to really enjoy pittsburgh it takes a little while you're binging on desperate housewives right so i yeah. guess just i guess just asking about like ideas of of internal and external what it means to be like a daisy mom i guess sure sure by the way i binged on desperate housewife again during covid lockdown <laughs> all right and watched all six seasons and had a fresh eye on six it. seasons oh my gosh yeah yeah there were oh. six seasons of it <laughs> and and as it progresses one season is crazier than the other <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but i think it was uh, yeah i think at that point when i first watched it when it was aired the significance was that it was in the Chicago area, like not in Chicago, mm. but in Illinois. So, oh, so okay. Chicago, but but this time I had like fresh eyes on it. So yeah, but talking about the Daisy culture. So mm-hmm. again, um, I have written about this in book as well that in Pakistan, uh, Daisy is used as a pejorative, right? Like, word that you would use uh, synonymously with uh uncultured or Mm. not in a positive way but in the u.s daisy is an identity in fact the new acronym that is used for the asian american community is apida which is and the d stands for daisy american in it okay so so you know it has become a a growing part of identity Mm. and and the daisy american is um you know again as i have written in the book is a loaded term it comes with its own connotations and uh, and what it means to be a desi in the united states and uh most uh, mostly like what you would include in desi is the south asian community so in people mm-hmm. from india pakistan bangladesh um and nepal like others in the south asian region though mm-hmm. you know at some point it also starts verging on the east asian Mm. So Desi is South Asian. Mm. And uh, the, the part of the Desi culture, that community that I belong to is Pakistani. So so one is, which is, again, smaller than the Indian. So one mm. thing that defines that Desi community, and I have talked about it in the book, um, are the dietary preferences. Mm-hmm. So we are all... Um, so most most Pakistanis, I would say, are Muslims in the United States. And that is, there are some minorities, but uh, mostly it is a Muslim community. We drink a lot of chai because mm. we don't drink alcohol as a general rule. I mean, mm. there are people who do, but as mm. a Muslim community. And then, um, again, because we are such a minority within a minority, like mm. Muslim community in the U.S. is very diverse. So there are Muslims from the Middle East. There are Muslims from Africa, from their homegrown Muslims in the U.S. who are children mm. of immigrant and grew up here like my children. So, mm. so the Desi, and though, you know, my children would also identify as Desi, I would say, but but that immigrant Pakistani community is a very small bubble. And therefore, it uh, it's very close-knit. Mm-hmm. It gets together, especially in a city like Pittsburgh, where it was, again, a very small community. Mm. Um, there would be a lot of gatherings and um, and we would mix and mingle a lot, literally like every weekend. And yeah. women also get together in addition to getting together over the weekend, but also during the week. And and it's literally as if that uh, desi uh, socializing is all that you would do. Mm. 
Thank you for that. So like, um, I thought it was really interesting, like the two kind of like two parts to it, this idea of like, uh, quote unquote, going bad, like, you know, the kids and the next generation, I'm sure every immigrant group can, can identify with this idea of, you know, becoming too Americanized is, is synonymous with going bad or, you know, going the wrong way. And then how you link that to like, okay, well, people will say, all right, well, if the kid's going bad, quote unquote, becoming too Americanized, that's because maybe the mom is too busy at work. Yes. Right. You, you you had that going, but you also, you talk about at least two, two experiences that really kind of changed your, your trajectory. And one was, um, was attending Hajj in Mecca. And you really saw, you know, ideas of maybe ideas of some of the privilege you had and what you could do with that. And then you were inspired to go to the grad school, which is the, the acronym is GSPIA. GSPIA. Yes. Yeah. So I just, I just wonder about, um, about how that trajectory kind of changed you and how you were inspired and guided. Sure. So, um, so both the things that happened, um, like Hajj, as well as my going to graduate school, um, happened around the same time. And that was, I would say that was a time when um, both our daughters were born and the older one was four years old. My husband was out of his training which looks like it took forever mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so that was I would say a point in my life when I had started thinking more about my career and my future and what do I want to do with my life and and I knew that I definitely I love my children but I want to do more than motherhood mm. Um, and I feel that I will be a better mother if I am able to make right. a better use of myself and 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 you know like uh, be part of the larger community so uh, that was the inspiration i think hajj definitely the idea of hajj was that you know my husband and i always wanted to do hajj uh, since we got married i remember that one of the first things he said to me when we were engaged that uh, we should do hajj early in life mm-hmm. and and i think that has solidified our marriage at so many points that we are at the same page about where we are about religion and um and how we practice it mm. so so yeah and that was something which was always on the book it's an expensive journey to undertake mm. and and according to our belief and religion you only undertake it if you are able to financially uh, support it mm. um, and therefore in South Asia there's a concept that you do not and this does not come from Quran but it's a cultural concept that mm. you do not have to go for Hajj until you marry off your daughters because mm-hmm. that is a big responsibility in our culture but for us it was literally just a matter of having means and resources and children at an age where we can leave them with someone and then go to Saudi Arabia to perform it. So we did that. And I feel that it really brought not only a spiritual reconnection between me and my husband, but also a time of reflection for me personally, because during my time in the US, I have always been so busy with life with Mm. one thing or the other. And, um, and the kids were still young, like we had just had our, I think our younger one was a year and a half. Um, actually, she was two. Yeah, we celebrated mm. her second birthday around that time. And the older one was six. So so there was hardly any time to think and reflect. So it it really reconnected me with myself mm-hmm. uh, in so many ways. And and I think one part of it was that um, that I decided at that time, like I had, I was thinking I was, 
toying with the idea that should I just start putting my resume out there or should I go to graduate school? But then I was like, no, I do want to learn more and start fresh. And I'm interested in new things now, mm -hmm. uh, which are more than um, the degree that I did in the past. So I, I should explore it. The only thing was that um, I was tied in the way that I would have to stay in Pittsburgh. I probably wouldn't have to, but I wanted to stay in Pittsburgh mm. because I felt the life was at a point that I didn't want to disturb it. Right. I had a good network of friends at that time. And um, my husband had a new job. So, um, so yeah, my choices were limited in a way that, you know, what I want to do, I have to find it between a couple of universities that were offering it in Pittsburgh. The good thing was that, um, they were all very good schools and good mm. programs. Um, I specifically applied to uh, University of Pittsburgh because it was also a financial decision. Again, uh, my husband was faculty at University of Pittsburgh and mm. uh, I could get a tuition discount there. But then it was also a very good program and offered a degree specifically in what I was looking for, which was human security okay. and international um kind of crossroads of international relations and international development that's oh. what i did and i could take courses like cross board so i also did a certification in global studies program with a mm. concentration in south asia and middle east no, south and central asia and i think i also took a class about middle east right. so uh, so you know it was a, it was a pro I, I think it was just such a good match in so many ways nice in school in Pennsylvania, for example, there was, you know, you talk about ways in which there was unity amongst Muslims, amongst everyone. There was, and this wasn't necessarily everyone, but you had enough where there was this, like a security company or something that was uh, going to work with your, with your daughter's school. And, you know, it turns out there was some really hateful, like Facebook posts and things like that from the, the president of the company. And yes. you, you felt, you know, empowered enough and others felt empowered enough to protest and you were able to to get a different company right 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 and 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 that is you know so there were there were things that you know from when I first came to Pittsburgh um I felt that we are never going to stay here for this long like mm. you know initial plan was my husband will do his fellowship training at the University of Pittsburgh um children's hospital for four years and we'll go move somewhere. We will probably go back to Chicago or we will go to mm. another big city. But the community was strong. And uh, and time and again, there will be things that you would think that I have friends in this community and this community understands me. So mm. even if they're disruptors, sure, there are friends. So, and, and this is how this story evolved as well, what you are talking about, that there was a security company in the wake of all the school shootings that have been doing. Mm -hmm. uh, my daughters attended North Allegheny School District. And as a precautionary measure, they were going to hire a security company to do some active shooter training and a few other drills that they were going to do. And mm -hmm. um, with a, a, with a potential of providing security to active security to school as well. And nothing has happened at school, by the way. Right, right. It's, you know, it's all precautionary, but uh, but of course, by that point, and as we live in U.S. today, we know that this can be an actual event, unfortunately. So mm -hmm. we have to be prepared. And I was the company that the school had. This is a public school, so they have to make public disclosures of 
what they do, but apparently there was a lot of secrecy around this process. And uh, some people found, and these people were not Muslims, um, and they found that the person who leads that company, the president of the company, had uh, made hateful posts uh, about different minority communities. So on his social media pages, he had uh, xenophobic, Islamophobic, homophobic comments. And, and he is, he's using them as part of training that the kind of mm -hmm. people you should catch on or look for in the mm -hmm. community. And the and the concern here was, which was a very valid concern, that they will use these terminologies and this kind of ideology in the active shooter training that they will give to school and school students at large. And that that will lead to um, how students in that school look at each other. Right. So, for example, if you are using an image of of a Muslim boy or a Muslim girl who is in hijab as a, as a sort of lone wolf, for training purposes, mm. that is how the mind shift of the students will shift. And when they right. look at their peers who who look like the pictures that they have seen on screen, mm -hmm. they will think of them right yeah. away. Yeah. So that that was the argument. And then these uh, these women who find who found uh, there was a group of women who uh, identified these posts and uh, very smartly they made PDFs of it because they knew as soon as this goes out those posts would be taken off mm. and they started questioning about the school board about it but the school board didn't really and want to answer them and there were emails that came out later much later in the process that showed that there was an internal discussion you in the school board but they just didn't want to deal with this. They were like, we can push through this and do this. But the women who took this up were very good organizers. One of them wrote to me, by the way. Mm -hmm. They wrote to many other people in the community. They wrote to the Islamic Center of Pittsburgh as well. I was serving as the president of the Muslim Association of Pittsburgh at that time. So they wrote to me in that capacity, in that inbox, not my personal email, but there was a MAP president um, inbox that I used to manage. That's where I found the email, looked into it. Um, they actually had no idea that my own children are in a school in that mm. same school. Mm. We connected and and that's where it rolled on from. Long story short, um, there was a hearing at a board meeting and uh, lots and lots of people came out. Like there mm. was no space to park in a huge parking lot. Mm -hmm. I would say it was a meeting of 200 people probably. Mm. And and otherwise, like, you know, if you know public school, yeah. school board meetings, I have been there, to, there was a time I was a school rep for a school board and I, I have been sometimes being like one of the two other school reps. <laughs> there. So, so yeah, no one attends those meetings, but, you know, having that audience was great. Uh, most people did come to support um, mm. the minorities, like Muslims and others, but mostly it was Muslims who were targeted in those posts. And not only our folks spoke, like people from the Muslim community and community centers but then uh, many others like I remember there was a marketing professional who spoke and she 
she made good points that how this is poor marketing material. Mm. There was a lawyer who came out and he said um, to the school board that you would have you would have to answer for this. Mm. What's yeah, not not so much the person who's doing it, but you, right. all of you who are sitting here and making this decision are answerable. And so there were several others from the community. But I think what was what was good to hear that the president of the company was also there, uh, the person who had actually written these posts. And he he did ex- acknowledge that it came from a place of uh, his misunderstanding and and this was not his intention. And I know we have heard that rhetoric as well, but sure. but we can only work with so much, right, mm-hmm. what we hear. But, but he did seem remorseful and... Uh, apologized publicly and and his contract did not go through he he did ask that you know he would appreciate if he's given a chance he also offered to meet with some of us and um but this like it was the next day like there was no need for any more meetings the mm. school board did not uh yeah let it go through power to the people right yes yes yeah, yeah. and to the community right i think I, I, it was at that point i learned that um we really are winners if we stand together. Mm. You write a lot about yourself being a student. You talk about, you know, you know, a student of Americanism, et cetera. But like, even, you know, with your daughters, your daughters are your blood, but they're growing up. They grew up, they were born in this country mm-hmm. and, you know, just they're different lives than yours. And um, I, you know, so you did a lot of reading, but also to be able to to describe to them. I thought that was so interesting because, Again, you grew up with in a country that was what ninety eight, ninety percent Muslim. Yes, and not the same for your daughters, and so they have, and they're questioning people. They're very curious, like look like kids are, and so you're like, you like, like all of us, like I got to answer these questions for my kids, right? I got to yeah. know which ones, which ones maybe not to answer or or to answer in a different way because they're not old enough to understand. But um, so you know, definitely a great role model as a student, not just a not just a teacher. But also like what's so interesting about the book is I don't know if it's a perfect analogy, but just the idea of like somebody who's a a, con- a convert to a religion or somebody who, you know, learns how to drive later in life. Like maybe they're more like intense about that thing. Right. So you talk about I'm making a long point of like you talk about American Muslims and like a lot of inshallah and help me with the the acronym was like J.A.K. Yeah. Yeah. Jazakallah khair. Right. Like signing off with emails. And every time you see somebody, you know, in the American Muslim community, you know, inshallah and, you know, and using a lot of the Arabic and a lot of those terms where, again, you're just like, well, you know, in Pakistan, it wasn't as in your face, I guess, if you will. I don't mean that in a negative sense, but just like um, learning to be an American Muslim, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Right, right. You're, you're right. And uh, and I think at this point, I'm more of an American Muslim myself. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, so one important difference is that growing up in Pakistan, Arabic was not our first language. Right. And there are... Uh, there are Urdu words for for saying all that that you just said in Arabic, right? So, uh, so more, many times what we would say in Urdu, we would it would be a translation of that. But here in the United States, uh, there is there's a lack of Muslim culture, right? So, so the the culture mm-hmm. that most people aspire to while growing up here, or you know, even when 
my children went to Sunday school. Uh, it's it's always that, you know, the Kaaba is in Saudi Arabia. That's where we go for Hajj. That is almost like the center of religion. And, and Arabic is not only the language of Saudi Arabia. It is right. also the language of the Quran, which is mm -hmm. our holy book. And that's where the words come from. So, uh, and I think it also kind of unites the Muslim community in America where mm -hmm. there are people from so many different cultures sure. who speak different languages. There are people from Africa and Asia and, you know, like Europe and different parts of the world, those who are indigenous to the United States as well. Mm -hmm. So so Arabic provides a unifying language to that because Quran is a unifying language. Arabic is the language of the Quran. So that's where all these words come from. But but when I came to the United States, I wasn't naturally, for example, prone to saying Jazakullah khair, which is an Arabic word for saying thank you, because mm. Urdu also has a parallel, which is shukriya. Right? So, mm -hmm. so that was definitely a, a learning curve. And um, I also feel that this has to do with a minority identity. Mm. And uh, minorities can be more protective about how they yeah. speak and how they uh, and how they behave and how they act mm -hmm. um, to to look like their identity. It can go both ways, but yeah. you know, identity is also hardened at times. And and I feel that that has been case with American Muslims at different points in time as well. Right. A huge uh, milestone for you and for the city was becoming the the president of of MAP, which you said what Muslim Association of Greater Pittsburgh. Yeah. And there were so many triumphs that you write about. Um, this was what maybe five or six years ago. Um, but like any single place in the world, there's always politics involved, right? There's always, you know, generational differences, and so and so's been around, and so and so's connected to this person. I think overall it was a good experience for you, but and you had some some great friends who you enumerate who are not just involved with with uh, with the Muslim Association, but all around. But I just wonder if you could talk about some of the the struggles and some of the triumphs. Um, like I said, like you said, politics is involved in everything, and even something that you know wasn't like you were paid a million dollars for, right? It oh wasn't yeah, like... <laughs> it was a volunteer position. Right. Yeah. But even in a volunteer position, there was a lot of like, oh, you know, factions, and this person knows this yeah, person. Yeah. So I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And, and you know, long before I was the president of the mosque, one of my professors at graduate school had said it. Uh, we were actually talking about synagogues, I think, at that point. And he said that some of the worst politics yeah. is at faith-based places. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and I I think that was actually what brought me relief that whenever I would talk to a person of another religion about it, they would always say that, Oh, that happens. Like, you know, no one seems surprised. I think for uh, me to begin with, I do want to say that, you know, my election to that post was not very controversial. Like, mm. you know, I was asked to represent the community. I was asked to be in that position. Mm. So it isn't like that there was a big election and there were 10 people and right. I, you know, came through it. So, you know, I was asked for it. There were reasons why I was asked. I later understood there was definitely a desire to to show the more progressive side of the Muslim community. Um, also, you know, we do hear time and again, we hear about uh, 
in, in outreach events that can Muslims do, Muslim women do this or that or lead a prayer or lead a community center or do what. So I think it came out of that desire from from a very honest desire to to mm-hmm. put a face that, you know, yes, Muslim women can be in position of leadership. But I think the challenges came from that any woman in any place where she the first would experience that people do not know that now there's a person who's not part of the old boys club, as you said, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, uh, because many of the decision making, for example, if there's an event, a big event like Eid, which is our holiday, mm-hmm. and that needs organization. So the first time it happened, and I was the vice president at that time, uh, and I should have been a key figure in that planning process. Mm-hmm. But no one thought of including me in it, right? Uh-huh. Because this was something that men had done together, right? right. They, they sit around. And I have to say that over the years, there was also a level of comfort that my colleagues in in on the executive council also developed that, you know, we, we can sit together and talk about it and mm-hmm. talk about things. But, uh, but it came with challenges. Some of the, the descriptions of jobs, so were written in a way that you know it was people just assumed that men will be doing those things and then uh, so for example uh, any decisions related to renovation and anything that worked about construction or property management it was never envisaged that that you know a woman would be doing them or mm-hmm. taking care of them well, yeah so there's the and you 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 draw the the really fitting parallels between like yourself and like you know Hillary Clinton at the time yeah. with the election cycle and stuff i mean it was uh you know it's one of those things you know she was yeah. a man never would have been judged for like you know wearing pants or you know she was seen as like oh she was too emotional or too emotionless right, or right, right yeah. like the angry woman kind of stereotype exactly and, yes right and you have this great quote my honest explanations will lose his smart lies will win hearts yes and that's actually a couplet by one of the urdu language poets Parveen Chakar whom I greatly admire and this is my translation of it okay and, and that's how I kept on thinking about it that see whatever I say it's it just gets misinterpreted in one mm. way or the other and had reached a point that some of my friends, like I would not even send out an email or say things to anyone before checking with, with one of my friends. Saying, mm-hmm. Hey, does this look right? Does this look like something that it's, mm. um, it can be misinterpreted in any way. But again, in the end, I feel that uh, there were more positive experiences that came yeah. out of it. More things that I can look back and laugh at. And, you know, they were more like growing pains and again, learning opportunities for me. And um, I do believe that I uh, I grew uh, into a better person as mm-hmm. a result of that experience. And again, when I opened myself to learning more. Right. Well, yeah, and you, you know, it'd be a lot easier for the second one, right? For the second woman, for sure. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> and I hope there is one soon because... Yes. Yeah, with the growing, you know, involvement just in the community and in, in, in all different communities, the the protests over fracking and leadership leadership yes. Pittsburgh, right? And then with with OSHER or the acronym is O L L I, as like as being a teacher, and you you described like it's kind of like a a continuing education, right? Like a yes. 
it right? is right take take classes of your of your choosing i i wonder you talk about all how you felt like really challenged in a good way and you know you really prepared for those classes and you, you said it was what muslims in the neighborhood yes and that's a class of I have taught several times by now mm. for several entities. So I started teaching it for uh, the OSHA program at yeah. the University of Pittsburgh. OSHA programs are out of OSHA Foundation. Um, OSHA Foundation has, uh, so the concept is that OSHA programs uh, will be based on university campuses. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are born out of desire of Bernard OSHA, who I believe is not alive, but his family runs the program, the mm. foundation. So there are several in Baltimore as well. I teach at uh, Towson University's OSHA program. Oh, okay, cool. This semester, I will also be teaching at Johns Hopkins uh, OSHA program. Mm -hmm. And that will be the same class, Muslims in the Neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I also have been teaching at another program, which is very similar to OSHA. It's at uh, Notre Dame um, of Maryland mm -hmm. University, but it's called the Renaissance Institute. But it is... The concept is the same, continuing education, most right. years, and, uh, but I really enjoy those opportunities. Well, yeah, you talk about enjoying those opportunities and, you know, good questions. And like you said earlier, like over the years, they've evolved into more nuanced, but I, I just wonder, like, sometimes have you felt like a, like a burden as in like, you know, people have these, these, some people have these hate, these, this hatred towards Muslims, this Islamophobia, yeah. they have this, this ignorance, do you ever feel like it's, you know, it's a burden kind of being like, let me, let me educate you about this when it's like, well, educate yourselves. Do you know what I mean? Like oh, a, pres yeah, a pressure yeah. of being I, like I a representative. It. And once you know? in a while there would be a person in class. And, um, and I, I feel, I, I totally get you. And, you know, someone, and it always, I think the most um, pro problematic uh people i or you know i would say sometimes i look at it this way that you know though they are also trying to understand and gain mm -hmm. clarity for themselves mm -hmm. but uh sometimes people can be close-minded and not want to understand mm -hmm. and uh and they have read things and they have seen things uh and they would want to believe them and i do say it in the class always that uh you know i i'm not justifying the religion of Islam. I'm just here to impart hmm. a basic knowledge about it, introduce you to American Muslims, but uh, but I should not have to justify my faith or right. You know why why is it or why is it not? Yes, to some extent, there are justifications for it, but then hmm. religion and any religion for that matter is a matter of belief. Yes, and those who believe in it believe it with with their heart, with their mm -hmm. soul, right? Mm -hmm. No doubt about it. I appreciate that. That makes a lot of sense. The idea of like not the key is not needing to justify. Yeah. You're explaining, you're describing, but uh, recent years and in, into finishing the book about probably about three years ago or so, a little bit less, because you 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 end the book with like a like a COVID chronicle, which is really interesting. Yes. Like interesting, like time capsule, even for you, I'm sure, right? To, even to yes, read it now, yeah. right? Because there's been so many different phases of of COVID and the pandemic. Um, there was you know there was the the loneliness that came after the original, like, oh, this is kind of cool, as or or this might literally just be two weeks. Like, this is interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm interested in how you would update the book, maybe, like 
um, you know, you, you end the book when kind of in the, maybe like the summer of 2020, I'm guessing. Yeah, a few yeah, yeah. Of, I think when I ended it, it was June or July of 2020. Yeah, pre-vaccine and all that. Yeah, so I wonder yeah. like how you would update the book. Like, I'm sure that COVID gave you a lot of time to to finish this book, to put yeah. the, the finishing touches on it. Like, I wonder how you would maybe update the book. Yeah, I feel like a whole lifespan has passed in those <laughs> three years for some reason, including me getting COVID this summer, this last uh, summer. No, same, same. Yeah, after all the vaccinations. I know. And yeah, it has been such a journey. And I think, you know, there is so much. There's so much that has happened in those last three years. Mm-hmm. Especially when I finished that book, it was still my first year in Baltimore. We moved in 2020 from Pittsburgh to Baltimore. So that was a transition. That's why there was also so much loneliness with that COVID experience because Mm -hmm. I did not have friends around. And, um, you know, so I, I know that people were interacting at some level, but for us, that interaction got very limited. Mm-hmm. And then um, the mosques also were, everything was online, virtual, not meeting. Yeah. So I feel like that these two years, if I have to define them, there was a lot of seclusion, a lot of isolation. I also feel it uh, it impacted kids in base. Um, my daughters and also other children that I see um, in ways that it would have been very hard to comprehend. Yes. And it it is almost like a a mental crisis in America at this time. No doubt about it. And and I'm sure there there are all kinds of things that we, that are so undeveloped, you know what I mean? Or that we don't, we're not even, I mean, it's just, it's been so recent. We are not able to fully comprehend. And I I also feel that, you know, what we are seeing in children right now, Mm. we will probably see in parents after some time, because right now we are holding on to our traumas. Mm. Many women have quit jobs, but, but this is all going to take a toll on our generation as well. No doubt about it. But, um, so so yeah, a, a lot. I I feel that you know I can probably write a whole book about the mm. last three years, but I'm I'm still too close to it. That was another thing about you know I I get asked that why American Muslim in 2020 and not before that, or, mm. uh, but I feel that you also have to be a little distant from the story right. to actually see it in the hindsight and and to be able to reflect on it and maybe laugh at some of those things Mm -hmm. or to be able to analyze them when you're you're living that story it's really hard to to produce it oh very very well said I don't know if it's you know been just during the pandemic times but you've really you've really branched out and you, you do better stories you work with the Maryland State Arts Council um I'd love to for you to talk a little bit about better stories and then and then what you do with like uh with food stories and you know for the for the Maryland State Arts Council. Yeah, so so better stories is my blog. It's also the name of my if you want to if you will say business. But uh it's it's born out of my desire to tell stories, I would say. Mm. And uh and when I published my book, I had the opportunity to talk to many women in book clubs. There were small book clubs, large book clubs. I spoke at universities and a lot of this is happening virtually, but I'm still connecting with women. And and I loved when women shared their stories and, and everyone would have a story to share. And I would always encourage them. I would say that, you know, one reason why I wanted to write my memoir is to encourage other women to tell their stories. Uh, but 
I know publishing can be hard and and sometimes people feel that their story is not worth telling. So I was like, okay, let me do this. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, and, and everyone has memories and maybe it will make it better if it's done in a form of interview. But then when it comes out, it doesn't look like an interview, but it's like a short memoir, almost like, you know, if you know, tiny love stories in mm. New York Times. Okay. That, you know, it's it's a snapshot of memory, but this is, this is who made them what they are today. And I have, you know, being myself an immigrant woman, I have always felt that immigrant women have such a unique perspective of to look at mm. our country and how it is and the landscape right. and, and living through it. So, so my first project that I did with Maryland State Arts Council, and then I had several partners who helped me disperse those stories, like mm. Welcoming America and then City Lit Project here in Baltimore, mm. um, a couple others as well. So, uh, so then, you know, i I did feature immigrant women and they were immigrant only and they were literally like snapshots of their memories and mm. and how what is becoming American to them? Mm. What does it mean for them to be an American and what was the process like? Right. And then as I was doing that project, I realized that food keeps coming up. How food is such an integral part, the food that they had at home, but then also the food that we have at restaurants and how sometimes there can be a conflict or sometimes mm. there can be an assimilation. Sometimes there are fusions. Mm. And as I'm doing uh, the Becoming American stories, I'm like, oh, I have to do a story about food. And I'm very yeah. passionate about food myself. <laughs> I, I love food. And, and again, you know, I feel that, again, I mean, just write another book about food. <laughs> Nothing on the books, but you know, I, I love talking about food and digging into its history as well, just like history of words. Right, so right. so that's where the food at home project came. And uh, and that was not limited just to immigrant women though, but also to um first generation immigrant right. women, like you know, women who grew up in households uh, which were first generation but yeah. they themselves were born in the United States or came here very early, like one or two years old, like Rabia right. Chaudhary. So, uh, so they had a unique experience of, of being exposed to both at the food at home and the food yes. outside in the world at the same time and yeah. how they took it in their lives. Yeah. That's another level you talk about, like just in writing your book about how you had to have some, some distance, some emotional distance. The same, the same, I guess, could be said, right, of of like immigrant women, They're, they have a different perspective, yes. right? They're new to it, so to speak. Um, and then and like you talk about even the first generation, they have, you know, feet in, in so many different worlds. One of the more recent ones was uh, with Layla Al-Haddad. And yes, yes. Uh, so interesting. I mean, you know, she makes the point that like, there are more, more Palestinians in the diaspora outside yes. of Palestine than there are there, Right. And she just Lela Lela was good. A, she is really yeah. good, man. I know. And Lela is uh is very unique to this project as well because she's a food writer herself. Right. And, you could tell. Yeah, she's a food writer. She is her book is uh The Gaza Kitchen. She's mm -hmm. working on another book. So so she does this and she's a gardener, a great cook. And she spoke very well about one thing that stayed with me was she said that how food is 
closely linked to the history of colonization mm -hmm. and how and what it represents in the world outside. So, for example, what golden arches mean to the world is very different than what yeah. McDonald's came here in the United States. Sure. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, she, uh, you get, like I said, you can tell that she's she's a writer. She's very polished. I think she even got props from the the Don Anthony Bourdain for her book. Right? Yes, yes. Man. Yeah. And, you know, like Monica Brown, Monica Brown, she, she's an elite Yelper. I always love that. Term. I know. And I, I follow <laughs> her. I, and I'm so glad, like, because, you know, when I did these two projects, I was new in Baltimore myself. Mm -hmm. And the food at home just finished, but just wrapped mm -hmm. it up. But I'm still emerging out of COVID in Baltimore. Right. So um, I feel I have met. I met so many people through these stories and mm -hmm. I have made good friends. Um, so, you know, I, I met Layla through this, but then we yeah. met in person and now we follow each other on social media and, nice. um, and, you know, like same with Monica Brown, she, mm -hmm. she posted something about a Thai restaurant in town and I was like, Oh, I should go check this out. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, I'm also learning through all these stories that I'm doing. You know, the book is is great, whether it's COVID times or not. But it um, it says a lot about about, like I said, COVID times. It's really a time capsule, especially that last chapter. And the book is, you know, like you said, it spans over 20 years or so, about 17 years. And so much has changed in your life and in the world. And it's just a, a really good book that I'm looking forward to adding to my to my library in my high school classroom and kind of Thank nudging you. a few students like, hey, looking for something to read, looking for something to read. There you go. Right. Yeah. So so really appreciate you being um, you know, so vulnerable in, in in writing the book and being able to give me some of your some of the background, some of the rationale. And just really enjoyed talking to you. And I want to wish you great luck with everything you do in the future. No, thank you so much. And keep up your good work. I enjoy your podcast. And it has also, um, I have known many new writers through your podcast. Oh, I appreciate that so much. We we, we creatives got to stay together, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. There you go. Thanks again so much. Sure. Thanks. What a pleasure it has been to speak today with Saima Sitwat. Continued good luck to her with her writing. And I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow her career and her important work. Thank you for listening to episode 160 with Saima Sitwat. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple and please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will P01. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My last name is R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. The most recent bonus episode deals with Tom Junod and Paula Levine's work in Untold ESPN, which was by some analytics the number one most engagement received in any story in 2022, and Gay Talese's famous piece about Joe DiMaggio. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental Version. 
And the other song played on this episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 161 with Matthew Celesis, who is author of, among other stellar works, The Hundred Year Flood and Craft in the Real World. He is the author of the forthcoming 2023 novel, The Sense of Wonder, and has written about adoption and race for NPR Code Switch, among other outlets. This episode will air on January 17th. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Saima Sitwat, whose work, Like American Muslim, An Immigrant's Journey, gives you chills at will. Mm-hmm.